PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. In this episode, we talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, a distilled history of an American crisis with historian Brady Kreitzer. At the time, the rebellion was known as the Western Insurrection and would feature the only time that an American president, George Washington, would accompany troops out on campaign. This week on PA Books, Brady Kreitzer, author of The Whiskey Rebellion. Brady Kreitzer is the author of The Whiskey Rebellion, a distilled history of an American crisis. They say in the book that, that this book seeks to fill a void in the scholarship. What, what was the void? You know, we have a lot of really great history here in Pennsylvania. Um, this is one of those events that has slipped through the cracks a bit from my vantage point. Uh, there's, I think, been only three or four books on it in the last 50 to 60 years. You know, the Battle of Gettysburg might get two books every year. So, so for as important as the event was, again, this was the greatest single crisis of George Washington's presidency, uh, the second largest rebellion in American history behind only the Civil War. As important as it was, I think it was sort of in a, in a blind spot in our kind of public consciousness here in Pennsylvania and really in America about the importance of this event. It was not um, well understood at the time in terms of the implications. And today, if people do know about it, I think they don't understand the real meaningful importance of it. So uh, I believed it's, it was time for a revisit from from historian. Now, one of the key parts of the book is that as you're talking about the different events, you also talk about what's there today if you went to visit those sites. And uh, how long did it take you to track down some of these sites? It's always been something I've been I've been working on as far as wanting to find locations. It wasn't always a book, though. Uh, again, in, in western Pennsylvania, a lot of these sites exist in kind of their original primitive form. There's not signage on a lot of them, or if there is, it's, it's only locally known. Uh, so for me, you know, researching for fun, visiting these sites was something that I had been doing for probably over a decade now. And then I realized, you know, I was finding a lot of places that were only known through word of mouth. Or locals would tell me that their, you know, their great-great-grandfather passed down that this had been something in the family and their grandparents shared that with them. These are the kind of things that you, you really don't find from the 1700s anymore. Uh, and that's what makes this event so special. Uh, and I wanted to share that with everyone. So when we talk about the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, how much geographically, what, what, what parts of Pennsylvania were involved in that? Well, when you think about the rebellion, the uprising proper, um, I think people would generally say uh, Bedford County, Allegheny County, uh, Washington, Greene County, uh, Franklin County. But again, a lot of those counties didn't exist back then. So when we talk about Allegheny County, it was much bigger then than it is now. Bedford County was much bigger then than it is now. If you were to say all of southwestern Pennsylvania, I think that would be a fair assessment. But you know, George Washington's army will come from all over the state, and it will basically follow what is today Route 30 uh, through Carlisle, uh, across the mountains. So it really was 
a Commonwealth-wide event, uh, but it had national implications, and I think that's what's so important. How does the popular myth of the, of the Whiskey Rebellion compare to the facts? It's really a difficult story. I think when we think about history in any form, it puts us in a position we don't really feel comfortable with. Most of the men who participated were Revolutionary War veterans. So in a very real sense, they are heroes. We like to think of them as heroes. Uh, but then just you know, a decade later, those same men with those same muskets try to destroy the new republic. Uh, they try to secede and break away and you know, eliminate the sovereignty of America, which kind of makes them the villains. Uh, so it, it kind of murkies that line we like between good and evil and right and wrong, uh, black and white, you know, but, but the kind of secret is most of history is gray. Uh, you know, the, the lines are blurred, and as historians, we really live in that gray area. And I think the Whiskey Rebellion is going to challenge us like that. Well, let's, let's go back to the 1790s in western Pennsylvania. What would it have been like to live in that area? Western Pennsylvania was considered the uh, American frontier at that point. Remember, America has only had a constitution uh, for a handful of years. George Washington's only been president, you know, for a year or two. Uh, it was a rural agrarian society. Most of the settlers were Scots-Irish in origin, German in origin. They were visitors to Western Pennsylvania from Philadelphia, that said when they arrived here that the accents were so different they could barely understand the language. They were all speaking English. Uh, it was a community of farmers, very insular farmers, very independent farmers. Um, their communities were kind of their own, you know, independent nations in a way. They handled their own business. They were distrustful of the, the larger federal government, largely because it was so new. Uh, but they were corn farmers. They grew corn here in western Pennsylvania in the 1790s, we grew more corn in southwestern Pennsylvania than anywhere else uh, in, the, in America. Uh, so we were really the corn capital. And when you have that as your primary crop, it's very natural that whiskey is going to be your primary product. Let's talk more about whiskey. Why, why was whiskey so important economically in, in that area? We really grew two things in western Pennsylvania really well. We grew corn and we grew rye. Now, if everyone's growing that, you want to sell that to the markets of the East because you're not going to sell corn to your neighbor who's also a corn farmer. Uh, lugging those things over the mountains toward what is today Breezewood and then Carlisle and ultimately Philadelphia is very expensive. It's very cumbersome. So they would distill it down into whiskey. Uh, you could sell that much easier and it was much easier to uh, to, to carry eastward. Um, so whiskey became, you know, the real sort of lifeblood of this region. Uh, and, but it was also much more than that. It was uh, a currency in this region. This was a place where, you know, hard currency, money, and coins really didn't exist. I mean, first of all, as a nation, we didn't print our own money or mint our own coins yet. Uh, so it was a barter economy. You would trade your neighbor uh, maybe a few kegs of whiskey for, you know, a, a calf or a hog. That was how business was done here. So whiskey wasn't just something we made in western Pennsylvania, but in a very real sense, it was the driving economic engine of the American West. Now you talk about Monongahela rye. What would it have tasted like? 
this is this is where I think we have kind of a misconception about it. Um, you know, when you make whiskey, and I don't mind you, uh, whiskey comes you know out of a process that, that produces three separate sort of components, and, and and the runoff of whiskey gives you what they call uh, heads, hearts, and tails. Uh, the heads that comes off of the runoff is highly toxic. Uh, you hear about people going blind drinking moonshine. It's from drinking this. The hearts of the runoff is the good whiskey you want to drink, and the tails is sort of the runoff that has sort of an off taste. It's not toxic, but it's not desirable. In our modern sense, when you buy whiskey today, you're getting only the good stuff. We have computers, and we have uh, gauges and meters that tell us when that's good. But when they were making whiskey in the 1790s, it was all about volume because volume was money. So they were bottling all of that stuff. Uh, so the whiskey they made was a very spicy rye whiskey. It was well-known throughout originally the colonies and then the young nation as some of the finest whiskey in the, in, in the New World. But I want to make no mistakes here. You know, if you went to a liquor store today and bought the lowest shelf, you know, swill you could get, that would be, you know, light years better than the whiskey these folks made because they were bottling everything, good, bad, and ugly, because uh, that's how they made their money. So the whiskey they drank would have been what we call today white whiskey, unaged, unbarreled. You know, it would have been kept just in, in, in jars and jugs and kegs. Um, and that was, again, that was the, the primary produce of the region. And But it was well understood in, in North America as the best whiskey you could buy. By today's standards, not great. How was producing whiskey part of social status in the area. You talk about still owners being community leaders. Everybody in this region who owned land, for the most part, grew corn. But not everybody owned a whiskey still. Now, a whiskey still is a small copper pot still. Uh, you could find images of these online. You could even still buy them today. Making whiskey was a pretty simple process if you were an experienced distiller. Not everybody had the, the ability to produce whiskey themselves, though. Usually, if you had five or ten farms in a community, one person would own a still. And you'd bring your crop to that person, you'd pay them a small fee, and they would produce your corn crop into whiskey for you. So that naturally made those still owners kind of the um, politically connected, uh, you know, popular people in the region. You know, one of the, the richest men in western Pennsylvania at this time was a general named John Neville, who will play a big part of the story. You know, the average distiller had a 5 or 10-gallon pot still. John Neville had a 500-gallon still. So there was this direct connection with still ownership and economic upward mobility, political opportunity, uh, and government connectedness that was just really a big part of the story. So how did this community of frontier whiskey makers venture into insurgency? Uh, not easily. You know, when you study rebellions, they almost always begin um, in a peaceful way. And then they sort of morph over time. So the way this story begins is with the Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, who's very popular these days. He has musicals. Uh, you know, he's his own tourist industry in New York City now. But Hamilton had a vision for America, and it was his job to craft America's financial policy in its infancy. You know, he was 
Treasury Secretary George Washington believed in him very strongly. He was a very smart guy. But he believed that America would be built by the wealthy class. His friends in New York and Philadelphia who had money, who could invest it, men like Robert Morris, for example. Uh, he believed the government needed to get money into their hands so they could generate revenue and grow this country. And when Hamilton looked at the back country, the areas of the frontier, not just in Pennsylvania, but New York and Kentucky and North Carolina, he saw people that really didn't fit into that equation, people who grew enough food for themselves, who produced enough whiskey for themselves, but didn't really, in his mind, push America forward. Now, that, I think, is a, is a blind spot for him uh, because he had a very real prejudice against a lot of these people. They didn't recognize federal authority. Uh, they weren't hospitable to him and the Washington administration. Uh, it was very much, a, there was a political distaste for the class of people on the frontier. So Alexander Hamilton, in his report on public credit in 1790, made a big, long plan for saving the American economy. You know, after the revolution, uh, unemployment was about 30%. A lot of people don't talk about that. Revolution's nasty business. So for Hamilton, amongst his many plans for, again, getting America on its feet was what he called an excise tax. That's a tax on a domestically produced good on whiskey. Um, he believed this would really solve two things. He believed, number one, it would extract revenue and tax money from the very distant West, people that weren't really uh, well known for paying these taxes. And number two, and I think this doesn't get enough play in previous studies of the Whiskey Rebellion, he hoped it would bring these people to heel. They would, he would sort of force them to bend the knee and recognize George Washington's authority. Uh, if they didn't pay their tax, they would lose their farm. They would be fined such an exorbitant rate uh, it was basically their entire income for not just that year, but maybe perhaps four years down the road. It was really heavy penalties. So, so Hamilton created this tax, like I said, for very practical economic reasons, to extract tax money from the frontier. But I think on a more personal note for him, he wanted to bring these people to heel, these people that uh, weren't open to his authority. And quite frankly, no one on the frontier had been for Decades earlier, even in 1764, 30 years earlier, uh, Henry Bouquet, as commandant at Fort Pitt, described Pittsburgh as a, quote, colony sprung from hell. So there was a long tradition of anti-authority in this region. Um, and for Hamilton, he wanted to snuff that out uh, as efficiently and, and probably brutally uh, as possible. So that's all part of it. Uh, the people who lived here felt this law was unfairly targeting them and and I agree with them. Now, uh, unlike during the American Revolution, when the colonists were taxed without re being represented in the British government, these these uh, residents of Western Pennsylvania did did have representation. <clears throat> they they had members of Congress. They they had uh, Pennsylvania senators. How, how did their political leaders uh, react to this this tax? You know, you make a really great point. Uh, they couldn't they couldn't clamor no taxation without representation, as they had, you know, a decade or two earlier. Um, because they had adequate representation, the same as we have now. They had members of the House of Representatives. They had state assemblymen. They had governors here in Pennsylvania. They had senators in, in, in the capital, which was Philadelphia at the time. 
the way this was originally sort of expressed in terms of grievance was that the individual counties would meet in their county seats uh, in small groups, and they would make petitions that said, we don't like this law, and this is why. Uh, and then in that first summer of 1791, when the law was first instituted, uh, they'll eventually all meet in Pittsburgh, these representatives from these counties, Washington County, Allegheny County, Westmoreland County, uh, and Fayette County. And they met in what is today downtown Pittsburgh um, at, a, at a tavern called the Sign of the Green Tree Tavern. And they made a list of grievances that were very thoughtful, uh, that were very fair, you know, you had uh, William Finley there, who was a member of the House of Representatives. You had Albert Gallatin there, who was a member of the Pennsylvania State Assembly. Now, one day Gallatin would go on to become a U.S. Senator and eventually our longest-serving Secretary of the Treasury ever. So he was a very big, big, important person. It was a, Again, it was not a riot at that point. It was not a rebellion at that point. You had people who understood they had a constitution, still knew, but they had one. Um, and they had rights according to that constitution. And they signed a petition and they wrote their names and they sent the petition off to the Capitol, uh, which was absolutely their right as Americans, as it still is today. Uh, and the response they got was was not what they wanted at all. So uh, now this is a rebellion that takes place over several years. It doesn't just happen all at once. How, how do they go from petitioning for their grievances to a point where they're now engaging in violence? Well, when those petitions were taken to Philadelphia, both for the Pennsylvania government and the federal government, Alexander Hamilton kind of saw this coming, but again, he, he designed it this way. So he told his uh, allies in Congress, okay, let's reduce the tax. Again, this is a tax that can cost people everything here in the West. Their farmland, right? The things they're gonna leave to their children for generations. They lowered the tax by one cent. Uh, it was offensively low. It was, in my opinion, uh, on Hamilton's part, absolutely um, meant to antagonize them further. I mean, that is a character flaw he has. Uh, and that's when they realized that, you know, we're trying to play by the rules. We don't trust this new government or really believe in it much. And they're going to play games like this. You know, go figure. Right? We have people in government, you know, Congress playing games instead of, um, you know, doing getting something done, trying to score points. So shortly after that kind of rebuke or that sort of half-hearted gesture of a one-cent reduction, we begin to see folks, especially in Washington County, um, forming up into familiar groups that they used to, these militia groups. Uh, and they begin expressing their dis dismay in, in violent ways, targeting the most obvious uh, t uh, sort of manifestations of government power on the ground, which were the tax collectors and revenue inspectors. And as early as the fall of 1791, a man named Robert Johnson lives here, their neighbors, just happens to work for the Treasury Department. He'll be ambushed in the middle of the night. He'll be stripped naked, tarred and feathered. Uh, his head will be shaved with a razor. Uh, again, not very carefully. He'll be very bloodied by this affair. And he'll be beaten and left for dead in the streets. And fortunately, he survives. Um, but this is pretty early on. We begin to see this kind of dual nature of it. You have the official government channels, very slow, not getting results, which are being utilized. Then you have this kind of frontier 
vigilanteism that's starting to emerge. So I would argue, you know, almost at the same time as the meeting at the sign of the Green Tree Tavern in Pittsburgh signing those resolves, we see the first tax, tax collector uh, really brutalized and assaulted. Now you mentioned the militia. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the social role of militias out on the frontier? Yeah, I always like to describe militias in the 18th century sort of like the way we think of volunteer fire departments today. Uh, a lot of these frontiersmen, these Scots-Irish especially, have a distrust of the government because of their, their recent memory. I mean, in the 1750s when the Lenny Lenape, French allied uh, Indian warriors were attacking them in places like the Great Cove um, uh, and Penn's Creek, you know, there was no military response to help them from the Quaker-dominated colonial government in Philadelphia. So as early as the 1750s, they began kind of handling their own business here. Uh, that is to say, even their own defense, taking matters into their own hands. So the militia system here were really your friends and your neighbors. You know, you'd be farming at one moment, and the cry for alarm would come out, and you'd pick up your hunting musket or rifle, and then you'd become a soldier. It wasn't well organized. Uh, it wasn't always, uh, you know, clean either. A lot of rules of engagement as we'd understand them today, were broken by these groups because there wasn't a real command and control structure. But it was absolutely kind of the rule here on the frontier. And if you were to be a militia leader, it wasn't something you were just assigned to by the government arbitrarily. You were already a well-respected member of the community. So it was very much, you know, some historians have even said kind of like the central organizing cultural ethos of the frontier. Uh, I would say it was pretty important. How did the, the local militia transform itself into the Mingo Creek Association? I mentioned the first tax collector attacked Robert Johnson in the fall of 1791. Whenever he survived the attack and people asked him, you know, you need to go to the police and report who did this, he was sort of befuddled by the fact that the man who led the attack, they were painted in black as Indian warriors would have traditionally done, some of them were women, wearing women's dresses and spiking their hair and just trying to, you know, look sort of maniacal and dangerous, wild. Um, he said, you know, the man that attacked me was John Hamilton, who was the sheriff uh, of that part of Washington County. So what do you do if you're Johnson when the person you report the attack to was your attacker? Uh, it was a very bad situation. Uh, and furthermore, that same man, John Hamilton, uh, was the head of the state-assigned militia of this region in Pennsylvania. So if this did turn into a general rebellion, he would have to lead the attack to uphold the state sovereignty, which obviously wasn't going to happen. So at a place called Mingo Creek in Washington County today, we really see the violent resistance of the Whiskey Rebellion kind of fomenting and forming there. And, and by 1794, you know, it gets really bad. They established their own courts they established their own militias separate from the militia of Pennsylvania. They build jails. They put people on trial. They, they lock them up. Uh, it's these kind of things that uh, slowly chip away at, at the real health of a republic. And those kind of things are what prompted General, or excuse me, President George Washington to react with force eventually. Well, let's talk about uh, George Washington's response and that the, the, the force would eventually come a little <clears throat> later on during the rebellion. 
How has he responded to some of the early stages of resistance? One of the things I really admire about George Washington, you know, he wasn't a great uh, field officer in the Seven Years' War or, or even the Revolution, but he always had this tremendous understanding of the big picture. And for Washington, he was, you know, if you want to study leadership and the things that make a good leader, George Washington was a phenomenal boss as president. I would go so far to say that we don't have a republic today if really anyone else was president during those first 10 years of our existence. Washington's that important. But one of the great strengths of him was, was he realized that he didn't know everything. You know, he established a cabinet of advisors to help him make decisions because he couldn't do it alone. He understood his strengths and his weaknesses. So early on in this sort of fomenting rebellion, 1791, 92, and 93, not only does he have a lot of other things going on, foreign policy-wise, you know, there's an epidemic in Philadelphia of yellow fever. They have to flee the capital. One out of 10 Philadelphians die from this, this disease. He's always asking Hamilton sort of what's going on in the West. Are things under control? Can we handle these things? Do I need to be more aware of this? And Hamilton would sort of tell him, oh, things are fine. You know, they, they don't like the new tax, but nothing I can't handle. So again, Hamilton had kind of like this pet project in a way was this, this whiskey excise tax that he kind of had a lot of freedom and leeway with. And you could make an argument that he maybe let it get out of control uh, by, by kind of keeping Washington uh, out of the, the know in the fullest extent uh, that he could have. Uh, can you also talk about uh, the role of the Army in the economy around Pittsburgh and town like Bedford? Yeah, this is still a pretty wild place. If you wanted to be alone, if you wanted to be away from government overreach, you could really do it here on the frontier in the 1790s. So when the federal government, you know, came into an area, they really sort of beefed up certain communities as their federal presence. And this was almost always around the, the um, installation of forts. You know, Bedford had a fort. Um, fort Pitt was here in Pittsburgh. That's gone by the wayside. They've built Fort Fayette by the 1790s. Pittsburgh was very much the federal city of the West. Um, there were soldiers in the fortification. Whenever federal business had to be handled, it would be done here in Pittsburgh. You know, Fort Fayette had dozens and dozens of soldiers at any given time that had to be fed. They were given rations. One of them was whiskey. So a lot of whiskey distillers would sort of compete to get that rich contract to keep Fort Fayette and before that Fort Pitt lubricated with whiskey, you could say. So, so Pittsburgh was kind of the, not just the federal city of the West, but in this area, it was really the federal stronghold. And if that ever fell... You know, if anything ever happened to that, the federal government would have a very minimal grasp on really anything happening here. So it was pretty important in that way. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. So as this rebellion was growing over a period of years, did how did it move from, say, just a, a localized rebellion against a particular tax and ultimately developing a political ideology? As time went on, we would see organizations like 
you mentioned the Mingo Creek uh, sort of organization or Mingo, T- Mingo Creek uh, society, they would call themselves sometimes. You know, getting empowered, feeling like we don't need a federal government. We can make our own government, and it can be localized, and we can handle our own affairs. So that sort of thing grew over time. Now, you know, one of the things you have to remember is this is a four-year event. Um, the real heavy flashpoints come in 1794. So what you would have is an event, a flare-up of an attack on a tax collector in the fall. Then the harvest begins. People lose interest in in sedition or rebelling. The winter comes, that kind of freezes everything, literally. People would just stay in their homes and maintain for the winter. And people are living their lives and doing other things. Um, So it's really not until 1794 that we kind of see the boiling point occur. And that happens for a couple of reasons. One is that people are losing their farms. Um, They are being subpoenaed in court. Another is that uh, we begin to see a lot of the, the very legitimate people involved, like Albert Gallatin, who I mentioned, formerly a state assemblyman, now a U.S. senator. He begins to really distance himself from this because, you know, whereas before it was a reasonable legal protest of a legally passed law, you know, tax, it had been taken over by very violent people. Uh, Gallatin would later say that his involvement in the first year or two of the Whiskey Rebellion, he called it his only political sin. And this was a guy that had been in government for 30 years by the end of it. And that was his only political sin. It's very hard, even still today, to get a politician to admit they were ever wrong or that they ever made a misstep. Uh, and for him to say that <clears throat> was, a, was a big deal. So what really let it kind of fall apart was that the calm, cool, rational voices slowly trickled out of the movement. And the, the very violent extremist voices really took over. Now, some of the different figures that, that were involved here, there are a lot of interesting characters that, that were moving in and out of the West. One of them was Robert Wilson. Uh, you mentioned that he introduced himself as a traveling school teacher looking for work, but there wasn't quite something right about him, right? That's a real strange occurrence that, that could only happen in a situation like this. So shortly after Robert Johnson, the tax collector, was tarred and feathered, uh, this newcomer... Wilson shows up, and people, again, he were very distrustful of outsiders, and he says he's looking for work as a teacher, and then he begins to say that um, he'd like to inspect people's whiskey stills. He wants to know, did you pay your taxes? Did you register your still with the federal government? So very naturally, people believe to begin, uh, begin to believe he's a spy for Alexander Hamilton and the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department's behind, really, this entire Enforcement Act. Um, so Wilson is, <clears throat> much like Johnson, attacked one night, dragged into the woods, stripped naked, tarred and feathered. That's a very violent thing. You're talking about second and third degree burns over most of your body. But Wilson will be taken to a blacksmith shop where there is a, a, a bellows operating. There's a forge already lit. And he'll have a hot branding iron shoved into his stomach. It's very awful. Uh, you know, we tend to think of tarring and feathering and these sort of things as very sort of comical in the modern age. There was nothing funny about this. These are, these are very serious assaults. And Wilson almost died. And, you know, he did survive, obviously being terribly mutilated. Um, but the Treasury Department would later say, you know, 
they had never heard of him. He didn't work for them. He wasn't an agent of any kind. We have no evidence he ever had any affiliation with the federal government. He was just, um, you know, a strange guy with a, with a really poorly thought out hobby of inspecting whiskey stills during a rebellion. So he paid for that. Um, but again, it's, it's things like this that, that, you know, you miss when you don't really have a good understanding of the whole event, which I thought is one of the reasons this book was so important. He's a real outlier, though. Now, the, uh, during the period where the rebellion was simmering over a period of years, was the tax being collected? The tax was being collected where it could. Uh, one of the misconceptions is that this was just a western Pennsylvania tax. That's not true. Um, the entire United States was organized into sectors by the Treasury Department, uh, regions, if you would, to collect taxes. So this was enforced in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, West Virginia, what was today West Virginia, just Virginia at the time, Pennsylvania, New York, everywhere that whiskey was made, it, everywhere. Um, at one point, though, Kentucky was so far west uh, that the Washington administration just deemed it unenforceable. There wasn't really a rebellion there, um, but they sort of just wiped their hands of it. Like, they threw them up in the air. We can't, these, these people are just going to get away with it. But there was something to be said about maybe the proximity of western Pennsylvania uh, to the capital in Philadelphia. Um, they kind of, this kind of became the focal point of resistance. And you didn't see much of it in other places. Now, the counties of western Virginia will join in in this rebellion. It was very much a part of that as well. They even besieged Morgantown. Um, so that's, you know, a very major uh, event. Um, but, but really, it's, it's, even though it's everywhere, western Pennsylvania, and again, those, those northern panhandly kind of counties of West Virginia, what is today West Virginia, that will, will be the center of it. Now, another figure that, that appears in this story is Herman Husband. Who is he? Herman Husband is a really unique character. Um, he lived in what is today Somerset. At the time, that whole region was called the Glades. It was a wilderness area, very isolated. But the Forbes Road, built in 1758, did go right, right near there. Uh, husband became known as the philosopher of the Alleghenies. He was incredibly well-read and well-studied in the classics. If you ever read Husband's writings, it's very difficult. Because he's talking about these ancient Greek and Roman philosophers casually. Uh, like, we're all supposed to know who these people are. You really need almost a classical degree to know what he's talking about. But he had this vision of um, almost an apocalyptic vision from the book of Revelations of what Western Pennsylvania was. He believed that the Bible predicted um, uh, a new Jerusalem, uh, a new promised land for the world. And he had convinced himself that Western Pennsylvania the frontier, the Ohio country, was that new Jerusalem. And, and the Bible talks about, you know, seven gates and all this kind of symbology, and he would climb through the mountains near Somerset and locate seven mountain passes that, again, he believed were biblically foretold. And he did get sort of a following uh, of people in these strange kind of backwoods meetings that, that believed what he was saying almost in a cult-like manner. Now, all that aside, that has nothing to do with the Whiskey Rebellion. But when the Whiskey Rebellion begins, husband looks at that as his opportunity to make this happen. Okay, if these Whiskey Rebels are successful, he doesn't care much about taxes or whiskey. 
if they're successful, they're going to create the new biblically foretold Jerusalem. So this is my means. This is the moment. He's a real far out character. Now, there were several conventions, uh, one of which was the second Pittsburgh convention. Uh, what, what was going on at these conventions? What were they debating? And were they coming out of it with resolves and demands? The first convention was one I, I mentioned earlier. You had state assemblymen there. You had state uh, representatives. You know, you had congressmen there. They were just drafting lists of grievances. Um, here's how we feel. We've signed our names. Take it to Congress. Um, the second Pittsburgh convention would also be held in downtown Pittsburgh. This one was far more radical. This is the one where you see those voices that are calm and collected now having left, and the extremists kind of take over. The demands become more extreme, um, more, more virulent, much more anti-government, much more anti-constitutional, much more seditious, quite frankly. Um, and that's kind of how these conventions were playing out. As you get deeper into 1791, that's the kind of reasonable one, 92, 93, 94, they become far more extreme until they are openly calling for rebellion against the United States. And one of the key leaders, uh, one of the key radical leaders was uh, David Bradford. Who is he and how did he rise to power? David Bradford lived in Washington, Pennsylvania, the city proper. Um, Washington was a big city at the time, as, as big or even bigger than Pittsburgh. I don't want to give the illusion that Washington was a frontier place of rugged people. I mean, those people were in Washington County. But Washington itself, downtown, was a very modern American city. David Bradford was from Maryland. He was the deputy uh, attorney general of Washington County. He was well-educated. He was wealthy. He lived in what would be called a manse or a mansion, which still stands in Washington today. He was refined. He was well-versed in European politics. He believed in a movement sweeping France called the Democratic-Republican movement, uh, this sort of very small government, uh, low government or no government intervention in your life movement. It was organized and filled with wealthy sort of philosophers. Um, so he was not really part of the Whiskey Rebellion early on, but he was very interested in seeing it succeed. He would write newspaper editorials in support of the rebels, but he would never be present at these attacks or these sort of some of them liberty pole risings where they'd lift these poles up and have a public demonstration. He was a lawyer, so he understood that he wanted to have some plausible deniability. He wanted to be supportive, but not on the scene, so he wasn't uh, liable for whatever happened. Again, this was all against the law. So Bradford is kind of um, a cheerleader for the first few years of it. And then when all of I said, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of these educated, powerful people leave the movement, the rebels kind of look to him to be the new beacon, the new guide of the movement. And when he gets involved in 1794 is really when the worst of the rebellion happens. Now, one of the key uh, armed conflicts during this period was the Battle of Bower Hill at the home of John Neville, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, talk about Neville's role as a revenue inspector and why he ended up becoming a target. John Neville was one of the richest men in Pittsburgh. Uh, he was a Revolutionary War general. He served with George Washington at Valley Forge and all through New York and New Jersey. Uh, he was well-liked in Pittsburgh. Even though he would ultimately become sort of public enemy number one, he was very well-liked. 
Uh, he was a diehard Federalist, so he was in the same political party as Washington and Hamilton. Um, because of that, he was given the head of uh, the position sort of appointment as the chief revenue inspector of this region. So he would be in charge of collecting all these taxes that the people were really very much against. And that was very intentional. One, he was rich and powerful. Two, he was the primary supplier of whiskey to Fort Fayette, so he had a rich, fat government contract. And three, you know, Hamilton believed people wouldn't resist him because he was so well-liked. So this very quickly turns out to be a farce on Hamilton's part. Uh, even though people like General Neville, they will turn their back on him. You know, part of his job, as I said, is to collect taxes. He actually gets to keep a percentage of those taxes. So that doesn't sit very well with the farmers who he's, who he's taxing. You know, it's like uh, opposite Robin Hood, right? Steal from the poor to give to the rich is the way they see it. Uh, so Neville has a very unenviable job, but he takes it very seriously. You know, he knows there's problems with the tax. He's also a whiskey distiller. Um, but he believes he has a duty to his government, to his constitution, to his president, to see it through. And he will become the kind of focal point of animosity of these whiskey rebels in 1794. Now, uh, in talking about this battle, you talk about how Neville uh, armed uh, the enslaved people that, that he uh, had on his property. And you say that enslaved people were ubiquitous in the American West, but rarely appear in the historical record. Uh, what did you learn about uh, the role of slavery in this period? This is uh, an absolute, absolute blind spot for most Americans today, especially here in Pennsylvania, and even most historians of the American frontier in the 18th century. Um, you know, there was a, a census taken in 1770 of Westmoreland County, which was really all of western Pennsylvania at the time, and 200 families claimed to have owned over, I believe it was about 800 slaves, a little more, a little less. Um, Slavery was not just a southern phenomenon. Slavery was very much present and active here on the frontier. Uh, Pittsburgh had dozens and dozens of enslaved peoples uh, living and working here, uh, obviously against their will. They were just as much a part of Pittsburgh as anyone else. Uh, they did a lot to build the city. Uh, but again, they are uh, always present but never seen. We don't see them in the sources often, so we don't, we don't really give them the the, the credit they deserve. Um, you know, slavery is really an important part of the American experience. It's not just something that happened and left. But when you look at all of the, 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 you know, big mansions of the American South, when you look at these beautiful antebellum homes, even the White House, you know, you have to remember those were built by enslaved peoples. Uh, the architects of the American South were enslaved. The musicians of the American South were enslaved. Uh, the people that laid the roads and built the bridges uh, and built the homes were enslaved. Um, we put a real value in the North of working hard and, uh, you know, breaking your back and the, and the dignity of work. And that was something that wasn't afforded to a lot of enslaved peoples for most of history. They did the work and then they were left out of the story. If you look at paintings, historical recreations of the frontier, you never see black people in these paintings, but they're almost always there. We have this idea that the frontier was a place where you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you cut down trees and built cabins by yourself. And a lot of people did. But there were also a lot of African-American people here doing that work um, in and around Pittsburgh that are really left out of the story. John Neville owned over a dozen slaves. Um, 
and they were on his property in what is today uh, uh, Scott Township, Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, uh, and they were not unusual for being there. It was very much expected that they'd be there. So I think when you study the frontier, um, you have to understand there's a lot of people that live here, and the frontier community is really a very big melting pot of people, not just native peoples and settlers, but enslaved peoples as well. And they're all sort of blending cultures together. Uh, that's what frontiers are. They're places of blending, not necessarily of conflict, not all the time. Um, and, and the enslaved have, have really been left out of that story for a long time. Now, eventually the Whiskey Rebellion would get to the point where George Washington would invoke the Militia Act and, and he would start to organize an <clears throat> army. Uh, where, where was this army coming from? Were, were these militia units coming from different states? Yeah, we don't really have much of a United States Army at the time. During the same time as the Whiskey Rebellion, again, Washington has a lot on his plate. Uh, we're fighting what's known as the Northwest Indian War in what is today Ohio uh, against the unified tribes of the Western Confederacy under the command of uh, a warrior named Little Turtle. So we have real serious military concerns in the West, the far West at the time. Um, so Washington needs to throw together a military force here, and, and he will call upon the governors of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Virginia. Uh, the Virginia governor is Light Horse Harry Lee, and these governors will uh, raise troops and lead them themselves um, against these whiskey rebels. Uh, all told, Washington will succeed in raising about 13,000 men. That is roughly as big um, maybe a little less, as any of the armies he ever commanded in the American Revolution. So this is no small feat. Uh, and he organizes them relatively quickly in just a, in just a handful of months uh, to converge together from, again, four different states and march into western Pennsylvania. Now you're right that he organizes this army into two wings, a left wing and a right wing. How were those wings comprised and what routes did they take out to the west? When you have an army that big, you have to bring it all together, right, four different states. So the Pennsylvanians uh, and the New Jerseyans will come together in what is today Carlisle. Well, what was then Carlisle, too. Uh, and they'll kind of conglom into one force there. The Marylanders uh, and the Virginians will meet at Fort Cumberland in western Maryland, and they'll come together there. And these two forces will then converge in Bedford to begin their march into into the heart of this rebellion uh, in western PA, mostly toward lower Allegheny County and, and Washington County. Uh, but it's an impressive force. Now, the Army are, are not made up of battle-hardened veterans. Again, the battle-hardened veterans are the Whiskey Rebels because they fought in the Revolution. So most of this Army Washington's put together out of these four state militias are young men, 17, 18, 19 years old. Um, they have no combat experience. They're very undisciplined. They become known as the Watermelon Army. Um, as they move through the state of Pennsylvania, they begin to pillage and plunder livestock and local farms. The locals hate them. They're kind of a disorganized mess. Uh, but all things considered, I am fairly complimentary of Washington for actually, as rowdy as they were, kind of getting them together and getting them in action. So what role did Alexander Hamilton have to play in this army? He was Treasury <clears throat> Secretary, but he was out with the army itself. Yeah, he was always uh, 
one of these men that prided himself on being right in the action. Um, when we think of the Treasury Secretary, we don't think, think of someone doing what Hamilton did, but there were no precedents back then. You know, there was never been a Treasury Secretary before. Hamilton took this charge very personally, that he was a de facto, you know, point of the spear of federal authority. So he was marching with this army, and he was wearing a military uniform. Um, George Washington actually led the army himself. He rode a carriage. He had a bad back. Hamilton was with him. Uh, this was the only time in American history that the commander-in-chief, as sitting president, actually led, a field in the, uh, led an army in the field. It's never happened before or since. But what did Washington know? The Constitution said he was commander-in-chief, so he was out there with them. Uh, and Hamilton was right there alongside of him. And when they got to Bedford, Washington was greeted with this big rally. People made a big um, illuminated sign, you know, out of candles. It really would have been something to see. It didn't feel like a rebellion for him there. Um, and Hamilton sort of told the president, I'll take it from here. You go back to Philadelphia. Um, and that's what happened. So Hamilton was, you know, the, the de facto sort of head of this. Now, militarily, he wasn't. Light Horse Harry Lee was in charge. Uh, but Hamilton liked to say he was, uh, uh, you know, a real mover and shaker in this, in this response. Now, once this army gets into the region where the rebellion had been taking place, what was the response? Where did, did people flee the area? Did people stick around? Was there armed resistance? What really prompted the response was, again, when David Bradford kind of came to the forefront of the rebellion, he raided the mail coming out of Fort Fayette in Pittsburgh, and he opened it, which is a major crime because he wanted to know what people were saying about him. And then he planned this attack on Pittsburgh, <clears throat> which was a real threat. Because as I, as I mentioned, Pittsburgh was the bastion of federal authority in the West. And if that city fell, it was a, it was a major problem. Uh, so, so that's what kind of, kind of prompted the response. David Bradford began, began dressing as a military commander, even though he had zero military experience. Uh, he began riding around on a white horse and wearing medals, for which I don't know where he even got them. Uh, he began making flags for the six, uh, you know, counties of western Pennsylvania and western Virginia that were seceding. He began sending people down the Mississippi River to meet with New Spain to talk about joining them. Uh, it was a real serious problem. And, you know, when, when the army gets to Pittsburgh, this should be the time for the great showdown, the great battle. It never happens. Uh, the leadership of the rebellion kind of withers in the face of the oncoming watermelon army. They begin to flee into the wilderness um, David Bradford himself will abandon his wife and children and flee down to Louisiana where he sets up his own plantation called the, eventually the Myrtles Plantation. Um, he's a fugitive. Uh, and that army, instead of having a big battle, becomes basically the largest police force in American history. They arrest uh, almost 200 people for their role in the Whiskey Rebellion. They put them in jail. They lock them in basements. There's no... Uh, warrants involved. There's no reading of rights. It's wildly unconstitutional. Uh, and eventually, uh, 25 or 26 of these men will actually be taken back to Philadelphia and jailed. Uh, but for the most part, the rebellion kind of withers in the face of the oncoming army. Now, one of the figures uh, that, that is, uh, appears throughout the book and throughout the story is Hugh Henry Brackenridge. Who is he? I like Hugh Henry Brackenridge's writings a lot. He was a lawyer in Pittsburgh. 
he was instrumental in the founding of the University of Pittsburgh, but he was kind of um, a commentator on life in the West. He was very funny and very well educated. He wrote a number of books, sort of kind of a Mark Twain type figure before Mark Twain, uh, commentating on American life. And he wasn't really a leader of the rebellion, but he was always there. And I think he was kind of there as an, as an observer. He was the kind of guy that was friendly with the rebels and very friendly with the federal officers in, on, in around Pittsburgh. He just kind of had his finger on the pulse of the region. Uh, and as the rebellion really spun out of control, whether he meant to or not, he kind of fell into this role as like a negotiator between the two. You know, he had a foot in both camps. So he became kind of the voice of the rebels, even though he wasn't one. And he would relay the federal messages to the rebels, even though, you know, he wasn't working for the government. He was a man caught in the middle. And uh, for Hamilton, whenever he came to Pittsburgh, he wanted to arrest Brackenridge. He wanted Brackenridge to hang for his role in it, even though the role was kind of uh, you know, not not much of one. He just happened to be there. Um, so that's kind of Brackenridge's part of it. He never flees uh, from Pittsburgh. He has a mansion in the city. Um, he never tries to, but he does write this lengthy book after the rebellion um, that kind of is one of our great primary sources of it. He interviews people and records testimony, but all of it's written to kind of exonerate himself. You know, I was there, but I wasn't involved. Um, and he never really recovered from that. Um, Albert Gallatin, I mentioned, would go on to be the longest serving Treasury Secretary in American history. He'd serve um, Washington, he served, he served Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Um, you know, Brackenridge would go on later to be uh, a member of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, but that was a while later. So that stink of the rebellion kind of stayed with him for quite a while. So what was the long-term effect of this rebellion? Did, did it result in any institutional changes? Uh, did, it, did the Wissi tax survive? That's one of those interesting things. You know, there were three things really bothering the whiskey rebels that would have solved all these problems. Uh, number one was that there was a general Indian war in the West, which often took them away from their fields, made it hard for them to attend to their families because it wasn't really safe here all the time. Number two was that the British were still occupying forts in the land of the Northwest Territory. That was Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois. That should have been American land. It was on paper, but the British were still hedging their bets that we'd fail. So they kept their, their soldiers in those forts. And number three, the Spanish controlled the Mississippi River. And if farmers here in the Ohio country, Western PA were able to load their corn onto barges and send it down the, the Ohio and then down the Mississippi, they would have made a lot of money that way. But none of those things were possible. So the Whiskey Rebellion was kind of, you know, a collusion of frustrations that boiled over because of those things. I say all of that because within two years of the end of the Whiskey Rebellion, the Washington administration will broker three treaties that will end all of those problems. All of those problems will go away. Uh, so that would have really made this whole thing moot, I think. Um, Thomas Jefferson would have run for president in 1796 and 1800, and he would always lean on the Whiskey Rebellion as sort of like big government overreach at its worst. 
you know, and whenever he was elected in 1800, he was the one that ultimately got rid of the law. So it did stay around for a while. But a lot of the resistance early on of the Whiskey Rebellion, um, that the organized resistance, writing petitions, saying this is unfair, those became the basic tenets of Thomas Jefferson's Democratic Republican Party, which was very mainstream. Um, so it's, it's only when things went violent, when things got out of control, that the Whiskey Rebellion became sort of an untouchable event. Even to call it the Whiskey Rebellion is a very political statement. At the time, it was never called that. Uh, Alexander Hamilton called it, or I should say, at the time, it was really known in newspapers as the Western Insurrection, which is much more scary sounding. Um, and as, as Jefferson became closer and closer to winning the presidency, that's Hamilton's great political nemesis, Hamilton tried to trivialize the event. He didn't want this event to seem like a big deal. He began calling it the Little Whiskey Rebellion. You know, the Western Insurrection sounds very dire, which it was. He called it the Little Whiskey Rebellion, and that's what stuck. So you want to talk about political spin, 200 years later, here we are. Well, we've been talking about the book, The Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis. Brady Kreitzer, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.